Uh, I'm going to be reading and preaching from the Christian Standard Bible today, which is a wonderful translation if you haven't spent any time in it. Uh, in your Bible app, it might be called the CSB. And we're going to be looking at verses 32 through 56, and we're going to take it like section by section, but we're going to uh, back up to verse 27 just to get a little bit of context here. So Matthew 27, starting in verse 27. <clears throat> then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in a scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the staff, and kept hitting him on the head. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. The title of the sermon is, It is Finished. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and keep your finger right there in Matthew 27, and then turn over to Psalm 22. It has taken us a church, as a church, about a year and a half to get to this point in the book of Matthew. We're we're almost done. We have two more weeks that we're teaching the book of Matthew. It's taken us a year and a half to get through. But for the disciples, Matthew, who is one of the disciples who's writing this, and for the people who had followed Jesus, this was a three-year-long journey to get to this point, a journey where Jesus had invited people to follow him. And I want us to imagine for a minute <clears throat> that for three years leading up to this moment, that those who followed Jesus had been going down kind of this corridor with him. And along the way, Jesus pauses at different doors as he opens them up and teaches the, the people following him what the kingdom of God is like and what God is like. And Jesus keeps mentioning roads and paths and ways that all lead somewhere. There is obviously a destination in mind for Jesus. And so he continues to invite people down this corridor. But now we are here at the cross, at death, and what, various, is, what is very obviously the end of the corridor, at least seems like it. But is it actually the end of the corridor? And what seems like there is no more doors, are we actually at the end? As we saw last week with Billy, we have followed Jesus to the cross, and Jesus told us that we would. And for any normal person, the cross would be the end, right? Death is the end, but in the kingdom of God, death is not the end. In fact, in the kingdom of God, death is in many ways just the beginning. In the kingdom of God, the Bible says if you want to find your life, then you've got to lose it. And it is at the cross that we give up our lives in order to find them. And so we are here, and it's like we have followed Jesus down this long corridor, and now we are at what appears to be the end. But this is not the end of the path for Jesus. This is the path for Jesus. The whole journey that his followers have been on with him. This isn't the end of that journey. The whole journey was leading to this. But they don't know that. They're standing around and they're watching what's happening. And they're sad. And they're like, Jesus, though, our, our Messiah, our King. Like, what death? This is the end. All they can see is a cross. All they can see is what looks like the end of the road. And it's like, all right, I guess this is it, man. I guess, I guess we're here. I guess this is the end. But as we'll see, it's like Jesus turns around at the end of the corridor where there's like just nothing. It's just like a wall. And he's like, hey, watch this. And he opens up this door into this realm that nobody even knew was possible. Opens up this door that people didn't even know existed. And as he holds it open, he says, come on in. 
Everything that I told you about is right here. Everything that I've done and said was leading to this moment right here. We saw last week with Billy what following Jesus in the way of the cross looks like. But the cross is not the end. The corridor doesn't just lead to the cross, although that is a mandatory, mandatory part of it. It leads to what is on the other side of the cross. Namely, relationship with God, which is what all of humanity was created for. Intimate relationship with God. And everything that Jesus did was leading to this moment. And that is what our text is about today. And that is why Jesus endured the cross. It was for that joy that was set before him. The joy of us coming into intimate personal relationship with him. And so as we look at our text today, we have to remember that this is where we are heading. And remember that this was all part of the plan. In fact, it was so much a part of the plan that it was prophesied about some 1,000 years before this moment. 700 years before crucifixion was ever even invented, King David, under the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote about this day right here in Psalm 22. And Psalm 22, over the previous 1,000 years leading up to this, had become a beloved psalm in Israel. Every Jew in the country New Psalm 22. And what we will see today is that this whole psalm begins to play out before our very eyes. And Jesus will declare his Messiahship as even the smallest details of this psalm are fulfilled. So before we read our passage in Matthew today, I want us to read some excerpts from Psalm 22. Because David, I'm sorry, Jesus is standing there in the midst of... Of Israel. We got to get context. Anytime you read the Bible, you have to remember the context. You have to figure out, you got to put yourself in the context of what was happening. And what's happening was this is first century Israel. So, to put ourselves in a little bit of this context, let's read now Psalm 22. David writing this messianic psalm in the first person starts off in Psalm 22, verse 1. It'll be up on, the, on the screen if you don't have the Bible. He writes, My God, My God, why have you abandoned me? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Moving down to verse 6. For I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. I am a a worm. This worm that that, uh, David's speaking of here is the worm that they used to use. And they would crush it. To get the red dye they would use to dye fabric and stuff like that. The Bible calls the color in the Old Testament scarlet. The color scarlet is what could come out of this worm when they would squash it. That's the worm that David's talking about right here. Like God said in in, uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins were like scarlet, they will be made as white as snow. He says, I am a worm. Verse 7, everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads at me. We'll see this happen exactly as he he lays it out here. And they say, he relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me. Lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water All of my bones are disjointed, which is exactly what would happen during the crucifixion process. As you would hang there, all the weight of your body would weigh down until your, oh, that actually hurt just doing that. Until your shoulder would literally come out of its sockets and your arms would become six to seven inches longer. 
All of my bones are disjointed. Into verse 14, my heart is like wax melting within me as the organs would begin to fail due to the lack of blood supply and oxygen as somebody who is being crucified. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth as dehydration sets in. The tongue sticks to the top of the mouth, even unable to speak in that moment. You put me into the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me, which is exactly what the Jews called the Gentiles. They called them dogs. Even as the Romans, the Gentiles are literally right now surrounding Jesus. Dogs have surrounded me, and a gang of evildoers has, incl- has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Nobody was doing this when David wrote this psalm. David is literally describing crucifixion 700 years before it was invented and 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified. Then in verse 17, they divide my garments among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. Remember this as we read Matthew 27. 1,000 years before Jesus starting inviting anybody on this corridor. The path was already laid out. God had put into motion this long before it happened. And even long before King David penned these words, this was the plan. Back to Matthew chapter 27. Picking it up where we left off. Matthew 27 verse 32. As they were going out, they found a Cyrenian man named Simon. They forced him to carry his cross. Now, Matthew doesn't say anything about this guy named Simon, except for that he was from Cyrene, which is in northern Africa, about 900 miles from Jerusalem, a several-week journey to get there. And he is no doubt a Jew. There's a lot, of, uh, a lot of Jews in Cyrene at that time. They even had their own synagogue in Jerusalem. And so they would come uh, for feasts. So not, no doubt he's there for the Passover. But that's all we, we know about him, is that he's Simon from Cyrene. But in Mark's gospel, he tells us that the Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus, who the book of Romans tells us become prominent people in the Roman church several years after this. At this point, Simon the Cyrenian most likely has no clue who Jesus is. But at some point after this, this Simon will continue the journey that was started today in following Jesus as salvation will come to his household and his children will become a key part of the church in Rome. Simon from Cyrene has no clue, but this moment on the road to Golgotha is about to literally change his life. Listen, we need to hear this, that sometimes what seems like just an unnecessary cross to bear is actually the beginning of something beautiful. Simon thinks He's here just because the soldiers command him and force him to carry this cross for Jesus. But actually, God had a bigger plan for Simon and for his family. And though he doesn't know it, he is not being forced to carry this cross. He isn't being invited by God to follow Jesus down this same corridor that so many others have followed him down. And every step along the way as he is following Jesus on the way to Golgotha, every step is another step closer to what is on the other side of the cross. Continue on, verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him, that is Jesus, wine mixed with gall to drink. But when he tasted it, he refused to drink it. Jesus tasted this and realized it was bitter wine with gall. 
which was actually a merciful act that the Romans would do in offering this to people who were being crucified as kind of a pain reliever before the crucifixion, as a way to numb the pain that they were about to endure. But Jesus refuses to drink it. Jesus wouldn't take anything that would cloud his faculties or blunt the pain of dying. Jesus chose to suffer every element of woe in the bitter cup of agony on the cross. Continuing on in verse 35. After crucifying him, that is nailing him to the cross, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Remember, we just literally just read that word for word in Psalm 22. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads. Literally the exact same phrase and wording as we saw in Psalm 22, verse 7. Uh, verse seven. And saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. No, they wouldn't. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Exactly, this is exactly what's written in Psalm 22. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he takes pleasure in him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. Every moment of this scene was foretold in Psalm 22. A thousand years before this moment, King David described this whole thing in detail. And every moment is a moment closer to the end of the corridor where Jesus will, where Jesus will open up the door into this world that nobody even knew existed. It continues on in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, He's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a, sit, a stick, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Do you remember how our Psalm 22 began? began with these exact, literally verbatim, these words. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus, who was without sin in this moment, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he becomes sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in this moment there on the cross, Jesus takes on the sin of the whole world and in turn endures everything that we deserved for our sin including this abandonment from God that he shouts out about. And it is verbatim the first words of the beloved psalm that we read from. Verbatim, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me? It says that he cried out with a loud voice. Do you realize that it was literally almost impossible to even breathe because the whole weight of your body hanging down on your, your ribs would come up into your chest and you literally couldn't breathe. You had to push yourself up just to take a little tiny breath. It was almost impossible to breathe, much less 
talk much less cry out with a loud voice. But Jesus pushes up on that seven-inch spike nailed into his feet and pulls up on the spikes in his wrists just to get air into his lungs so he can shout out because he's got something to say. Jesus needs to make a declaration. And that's exactly what he's doing when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? He's not asking a question. He knows exactly what is happening. That's not what this is about. That's not all this is about, rather. That's why he yells, right? If he wanted to just talk to God, he'd just be like, he'd whisper. Or he'd think it in his head. He wasn't saying this out loud because God couldn't hear him unless he yelled. He was saying this out loud, loud enough for everybody around to hear what he was saying. It wasn't just for God to hear. It was for everyone else to hear. He knew what was happening, and God knew what was happening. This moment was for the people to realize what was happening. Jesus said this for us to understand. And as he did, every Jew within earshot would have begun to tune in to what he just said. Remember? Remember? Remember remember Psalm 22? Remember this was a, do you know that the Psalms were songs? This was a song that Israel had sang for a thousand years. And this was a well-known, well-loved psalm. Every Jew would have known this psalm and knew how it went. And Jesus doesn't just shout out some random part from the psalm. He shouts out the beginning words as if to start it off for the people. It would be like me quoting Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want This is what this moment is about. Jesus, right here, is like the greatest worship leader of all time. He is starting the song for the people. It's as if I sang, Then sings my soul. Jesus is starting the song for the people. And as he does, every single Jew nearby would have begun to fill in the rest. Wait a minute. Wait, did he just? Wait, that's Psalm 22. Wait a minute. He just word for word said the beginning of this beloved psalm that we all know. Wait a minute. So, wait a minute. I am a worm? Wait, the worm that was crushed and the scarlet came out the color of blood? Wait, God's saying, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Speaking of when the Messiah would come and take away our sin. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, they, they have encircled him? Wait a minute, these words that were all mocking him? Hey, those are the exact words written about in Psalm 22. That's exactly what David said. Wait a minute, David was writing about Jesus? Wait, David was writing about the Messiah? Wait a minute, Jesus is the Right? They would begin to like unfold this in their minds as Jesus starts this off for them. Wait a minute, Jesus is the Messiah that David was writing about? This shouting out wasn't about Jesus asking God a question. This wasn't a cry for help. This was a cry of declaration. Jesus was saying, everything you've read, everything you've known, everything you've sung, every scripture, it was all pointing to me. I'm the one. I'm right here. I am the one you've been waiting for. Long before King David penned it, God was writing this song. And here Jesus is bringing it to life. And we will be singing it for all of eternity as we proclaim forever what Jesus did that day on the cross. 
The passage continues on in verse 50. But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Hold on, stop right there. That's it. Let me read it again. Jesus cries out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Right here, okay, that's it. Everything, guys, right here, everything is done. Everything changes. Everything has been leading up to this moment, and right now it is done. John gives us a little detail about this moment that Matthew doesn't give us. He tells us that Jesus didn't just cry out like, hey! He didn't just cry out nothing. He cried out a very specific something. He once again pushes up on those spikes. And in the other Gospels, it tells us that he says, I thirst before this. What? He's about to die? Like what? Remember Psalm 22 and it says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You can't speak. You're so dehydrated. Jesus is like, give me a drink because he's got something to say. He's like, I need to say something. Give me a drink. Then pushes up, pulls up, takes one last inhale because he's going to cry out something. And as he exhales, he shouts out a victorious shout of victory loud enough for heaven and hell to both hear. And he cries out to tell us die, which means it is finished. Yeah, we can clap for that. You know what's amazing about this word, to die? It's not just the word. It's not just that it means it is finished, but the tense of these words. In the Greek language, the verb tenses are the most important and most communicative part of the language. And when Jesus cried out, it is finished, he cried it out in the perfect tense. The perfect tense is a combination of the aorist tense and the present tense. The aorist tense means something happened at a particular time in history, in the past, and it was done, finished, right then. But the present tense means it is happening now and forever. It's like this ongoing forever. It's happening into the future. And the perfect tense combines the two. It is finished in the perfect tense means that it is finished. It has been finished, as in it is done and will never need to be visited again. But and it will continue to be finished for. Ever. It is and was finished and will continue to be finished forever, guys. It is finished. What is finished? Redemption is finished. The work of God redeeming humanity back to Himself is complete. Separation from God is over. An intimate relationship with God is granted. Adoption is completed. Have you ever seen somebody go through the adoption process of adopting a kid and you go to the courthouse and they sign? The judge is like, they're yours. The child is yours. Adopt, the papers have been signed. The adoption is final. You are a child of God. What does it mean when Jesus cries out, it is finished? It means that every prophecy concerning the Messiah has come to pass. It means that everything is done. It means that all the work that needs to be done for the old covenant, man, it's done away with. It has been fulfilled. What's the next one up here? Sorry, I don't have it in my notes. The requirements of the law are wiped out. That's what it means that it is finished. And a new era of grace has been inaugurated. Rituals to cover sin and make ourselves right with God are no longer needed. That's what it means that it is finished. You don't need to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You don't need to go through some ritual. You don't need to read your Bible or go to church or pray or stop doing that thing. 
In order to be loved and accepted by God, Jesus did all of the work already. Even our most righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. We cannot perform well enough to be made right before God. So stop trying if you're trying. Realize that you're never going to do well enough. God loves you just the way you are, and there's nothing that you can do about it. And we need to rest in that. And then we can live from that place. We can read our Bibles and go to church and live our lives and worship and obey God and live holy lives from that place of being accepted already, motivated by love and not fear. It is finished means that the work is done. We don't have to work, guys. Jesus already worked. We are the recipients of his work. Listen, let me, let me, let me say this. What we get to do is respond to the work that Jesus has already done. We don't do the work. He does the work. It is finished, meaning the penalty of sin is paid in full. Jesus took on our punishment, and now you are accepted in the beloved with no requirements of you. The Bible says in Colossians that the the handwriting of requirements against you has been wiped out. It is finished means that the weight, the heavy weight of sin has been lifted, and now you can you can rest in the finished work of Jesus. And the payment for our sin has been paid for. Condemnation is finished. Listen, Jesus was condemned so you wouldn't have to be. There is therefore then no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned. Stop living under the weight of your shame and guilt. That is not for you. That was placed on Jesus. Jesus took it all. So get up and live like it. Get up and live like it. Be free from that. It is finished means that death is destroyed and those who are in Christ Jesus are new creations and have been risen into newness of life. Behold, the old has passed away and everything is made brand new by his death. He swallowed up death. Chains are broken. That's what it means that it is finished. Slavery to sin is done. Man, you are free. You are free. Start living like you're free, guys. You are free. It is finished means that the cycle of generational sin is broken. The pain, the, the sinful patterns that you inherited in your DNA, your whole family, just like, oh yeah, we just all kind of do this. Listen, that's broken. Or like those things that you just adopted by like watching unhealthy, like sinful patterns growing up, those things are broken. You have new DNA. You don't have to live like that. You have new DNA. The blood of Jesus runs through your spiritual veins now. His spirit is living in you and working through you and leading you. It is finished means that old labels are torn down. Those things that were put over you, like, hey, you're just so-and-so, or you are this, or you've put over yourself. Those banners that used to wave over you, those things have been torn down, and a new banner has been risen over you that says, accepted by God. It says, the beloved of God. It says, pure and clean and brand new. A new banner is waving over you. And it is finished means that the need to prove yourself is done. Because Jesus performed perfectly on the cross, you are free to not have to perform perfectly or even try. You don't have to try to prove yourself to God or to people or to yourself. Jesus proved himself so you wouldn't have to try. And you are in him. You can walk in that. You can rest in that. Everything that needed to be done for us to pass from spiritual death to life and to come into relationship with God 
has been finished and will forever be finished. Today, guys, listen, this is what we get to rest in. This is where we rest. We rest in the completed work of Jesus that was completed 2,000 years ago and is completed forever. So imagine the scene. It said back in verse 45 that at noon, darkness falls over the whole land. Okay, like it's for three hours. It's afternoon. It's not supposed to be dark. And darkness falls over the whole land for three hours straight. So if you're standing there, you're like, something's going down. Right? Like something is about to go down. Then Jesus yells out the first words of Psalm 22. And the Jews everywhere are starting to trip out. Wait a minute. What? Psalm 22? They're saying it. Maybe some of them are singing it. I don't know. Everybody's thinking, wait a minute. This is, I know this. It's all playing out just like David said. All of the attention is on Jesus, right? It's like, wait, this is happening right now. And then he cries out. Nobody's crying out. Nobody on other crosses are crying out. You don't yell when you're on the cross unless you really got to say something, right? But Jesus, he's crying out. All the attention is on him. He cries out, it is finished. Judgment upon sin is poured out on Jesus. And the weight of sin, it is lifted. The penalty of sin, it is lifted. And you know how we talked about going down this corridor where it seemed like there was nowhere else to go at the end. Well, Jesus is at the end about to kick down this door that nobody even knew was there. Everyone is looking at the cross. And then notice the shift in verse 51. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth quaked and the rocks were split the tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection entered the holy city and appeared to many did you see the shift did you see the shift here jesus cries out it is finished and dies and then the whole focus of the entire scene changes even matthew who is recording this moves the entire attention of the reader to something else in a moment the focus of everything shifts from the suffering of the cross to the implications of the cross it shifts from the jesus dying on the cross to everything changing because jesus died on the cross This is it right here, guys. This is where everything changes for us. Don't miss the shift away from the cross. The cross is not the end. The cross is the beginning. Don't miss this. Some of you are still sitting at the foot of the cross in your guilt, feeling bad about your sin, feeling like you haven't done well enough to be made right with God and to stand up and start living. But Jesus already did it. It's already finished. Stop living like it's not finished. We do need to come to the foot of the cross. We do need to know that Jesus bore all of our sin and shame there. That is essential. But Jesus didn't stay at the cross, and neither should you. Jesus got to what seemed like the end of the corridor, the cross, and he doesn't stop there. When Jesus gave up his spirit, it was like he busted through this door that nobody knew was there. And on the other side of the corridor, we see everything start to change. It says that the veil in the temple right then, suddenly, verse 51, the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. The CSB translated it curtain, which is a great translation, but I like veil. The veil is torn in two. Guys, we're talking about a massive four-inch thick fabric veil uh, that... 
by the way, could not be torn by people. Um, the historian Josephus wrote that if you tied ropes to the sides of the veil in the temple, the curtain in the temple, and then tied it to two horses and whipped them and had them run in opposite directions, you couldn't tear the veil. Notice how the veil is torn. Matthew makes sure to tell us. Verse 51. And the veil was torn from top to bottom. Matthew is very careful to make sure that we know how the veil was torn and to make sure that we know that no man went in there and like cut this thing as if that was even possible. This was God reaching down from heaven, tearing the veil in two from top to bottom. The veil, that which represented separation from God, was torn apart. That which represented separation from God was torn apart. That which reminded the people every day that there was no relationship without sacrifice. That there was no relationship without a ritual. That there was no real intimacy with God even possible. That thing that reminded them of that every single day, that was torn in two. And Hebrews says that now Jesus is the veil that we enter in through. So what is finished? Separation from God is finished. And then it says in verse 51 that rocks were split. We're not talking about pebbles here. We're talking about boulders. Huge rocks were split open. Rocks, that which was used to weigh things down, barricade things up, and close things off, were broken when Jesus died. And then verse 52, it says that the tombs then were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Graves, that which housed death, was broken. The Bible says that death is the great enemy. But the enemy, even the great enemy of death, is defeated in Jesus. And he shouts out with a triumphant cry of victory over his enemies. And he goes forth like a warrior the prophet Isaiah says. And then it says that even the earth quaked. This is an insane scene. The earth, the foundation of everything, was shook. That which everything is built on. The earth, the very earth, that which everything is built on, shook. Do we see what's happening here? God is changing everything. And everything, listen, everything in the seen realm is echoing what is happening in the unseen realm. Even the very earthquake, the whole earth began to echo in the physical what God was doing in the spiritual. God in the spiritual was breaking chains of bondage, breaking chains of sin, breaking chains of idolatry, chains of addiction, breaking demonic chains and strongholds. And at that very moment that God is breaking chains, rocks begin to break open. And people's foundations begin to shift. Foundations of false identity were being shook. And we couldn't see it, but they were being shook. That which people had built their entire lives upon. Lies about themselves. Lies about who God is. Foundations that people had built everything upon. And lenses that they, we, had viewed everything through began to shake as the actual earth began to shake. The cross is the great earthquake of human history. It shakes the foundations of everything we believe and know. The earth is the physical foundation of everything, and it starts to quake. God is echoing in the physical what is actually happening in the spiritual. As Jesus dies on the cross, 
People who are spiritually dead in their sins and trespasses begin to pass from death into life. People start getting born again. Chained up slaves start getting free. Chained up addicts start getting free. Dead people start coming to life spiritually as literally dead people physically are coming to life. We tend to gloss over this when we read this passage, right? It's like, yeah, it was earthquakes and Jesus and the dead people. Wait, whoa, hold on, dude. Dead, pe- dead people? Like we thought it was crazy when Lazarus rose from the dead. But that was just one dude. This is many people rising from the dead. Can you even imagine the scene? It's the middle of the day. The whole dark, the whole sky goes dark, freaky. Then the earth starts quaking. What's happening right now? Then you're in the temple, you're worshiping, and you hear from the Holy of Holies. Whoosh, stuff starts falling down, right? Rocks start tumbling down. The hills are breaking open. If rocks are breaking, they're tumbling. It's like everything. And then all of a sudden, dead people are coming out of their tombs. This scene is insane. Jesus died on the cross. The entire physical landscape of Jerusalem changed in a moment. This is what God does through Jesus. He changes the entire landscape of everything that we knew to be reality. Listen, if your life still seems pretty much the same as before you met Jesus, then there's something awry. Something is keeping you from knowing the power, the presence, the person of God. Something is preventing you. I don't know what it is. It could be doubt. It could be habitual sin. It could be maybe some demonic thing of you. I don't know. It could be some kind of wall of self-preservation that you put up to protect yourself and insulate yourself, but it's actually insulated you from God doing what he fully wants to do in your life. Man, if that's you today, if your life is not drastically different, if stuff hasn't changed, stuff hasn't been broken open and transformed, man, we need to just pray through that today. Today, that, that needs to stop. During the second set, there's going to be people on the left and the right. You need to come get prayer with those people. I'll be over here. I would love to do it. I'll pray for you, man. We would pray that that is broken today and you are set free to know and experience God for who he fully is. Guys, this is what happens when Jesus shows up. Things that appear to be big and strong like rocks and veils are broken and torn down. Things that appear to be dead and actually are dead are risen to life. Can you imagine the scene? Everything is shifting. It was like God was saying, I know you can't see what I see, but what I see is everything changing. And I know you can't see it, but let me show you what it's like. Bam, dead people start rising. Let me show you what it's like. Bam, the earth starts quaking. Rocks start tumbling down. The veil is torn in two. Almost everything Jesus taught us about in the unseen, he used seen things to teach us, right? Parables. Jesus told parables so that we could understand the truth about the things we couldn't physically see. But this, it was like his last great parable. As all of seen creation echoed that day what was happening in the unseen world. This is where everything changes. The door at the end of the corridor is busted open at this moment. And then our passage ends with this, verse 54. When the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the son of God. 
Many women who had followed Jesus from Galilee and looked after him there, watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Centurion man means centurion. It means that he was over a hundred people. And it says that this officer and those with him, they're attending to the crucifixion of Jesus. And after they see all of this, they realize, whoa. Wait, everything, all the mockery that we were just saying about this man, he says he's the son of God. Everything. It's all true. Truly, this man was the son of God. But this wasn't everyone. There's two camps there. There's still people mocking. There's still people blinded who would not proclaim Jesus to be the king. And you this morning, us this morning, we're either in one camp or the other. We're either in one camp or the other. How do you respond to Jesus? Do you join in with the mocking and make him just some man? Or will you see Jesus for who he is and recognize him as being the son of God? Today is the day that you choose. Jesus changed everything that day. I know I'm out of time, but give me two minutes. I just want to ask four very quick questions for us to ponder during the second set of worship and, and this week. If you have a phone or pencil or a pen or something, you might want to write these down. I just want us to ask these questions to ourselves. One, is there a veil of separation that needs to be torn down in your life? The veil reminded people that they were separated, but it also reminded them that they had to perform. Some ritual had to be done in order for anything, any kind of relationship to happen with God. That's been torn down. Are you living with some kind of veil up? It needs to be torn down today. What is keeping you from intimacy? What is keeping you from deep connection with God? Let it be torn down. And Jesus, you don't have to work hard for it. He already worked. Just come and ask him. Come ask the prayer team today. And you just need help. I need to surrender this and let this be torn down. Second question is what rocks need to be broken and shattered? In your life? Are there rocks that have been stacked up like walls? You know, rocks are really good for making walls in order to protect whatever is inside and keep the stuff outside from coming in. The problem is that when we put up these walls to protect ourselves, maybe from dangerous people or situations, those same walls end up being up toward God. Dam walls, for instance, are great for controlling water flow, but dams also kill much of the wildlife that is behind them. Tight, sealed up, Homes are great for saving money on electrical bills, but they also become the breeding ground for bacteria and toxins. Those rocks need to be torn down today. Thirdly, is there something dead that needs to be risen? Man, has hope died? Is there a situation in your life that it's like, nah, that's, that's dead, that's impossible. It's impossible. God couldn't even do anything. Man, God does anything. He speaks to death itself. It seems so final and says, nah, nah, nah. You don't get to choose. You don't get to decide. You don't have the final word. I have the final word. Come to Jesus and ask him to raise that thing up like he did with those people that day. That's what he does. And lastly, I want to ask this. Is God wanting to shake up your foundation and give you a new one? Have you built your relationship with God on a foundation of you seeing him as the grand rule keeper, for instance? Keeping a tally of all of your wrongs, pouring out blessing when you make good decisions, and holding it back when you make bad ones? That is not who God is. You think God is disappointed with you, for instance? He's not. He's not mad at you. He's not waiting for you to perform or to do something awesome. Jesus did all the awesomeness stuff already. 
That foundation that you've built on needs to be shaken up today. God wants to give you a new foundation to build on where it's not based on your performance. It is based on the performance of Jesus. The last thing I'll say is this, man. Some of you are still sitting at the cross, like I mentioned a minute ago, like wallowing in your sin. You followed Jesus to the cross. Awesome, good job. And you've been crucified with Christ. But listen, you have also been risen into newness of life with him. If you're living in guilt or shame and are still bound up in some way, you need to hear the voice of the Father from behind you saying, Hey, look, look at what I did. Your attention needs to shift today to the veil being torn open, to access being granted, to rocks being broken open, to dead things rising to life. Start living like Jesus already finished the work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) If you're thankful this morning, just say, thank you, Lord. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that it's done. Thank you that we don't have to try to figure it out or scheme our way to get it all done. Or, Oh, Lord, you did it. You did it. You did it all. We rest today in the finished work of Jesus. We worship you. We declare with all of creation what is already true. The work has been done. The chains have been broken. Every weapon formed against us shall not prosper. Dead things have risen to life. You have risen us to newness of life. And you have called us in to a place of intimacy. The place where the high priest used to only enter once a year in the Holy of Holies with fear and trembling. God, you have torn down the veil And you have said, everyone, not just the high priest, everyone, the doors have been opened. Come on in and don't come in with fear. Come in boldly, guys. Come boldly into his throne. Don't don't leave right now. If you've got breakfast plans, cancel them. You're staying here. Let's thank the Lord. Let's worship him. Let's declare that chains are broken. If you still got stuff that needs to be torn down, rocks that need to be, walls that need to be torn down, bales that need to be torn open, dead things that are dying and God wants to raise to life, man, you need to come get prayer. Come over here, get prayer from the prayer team. They're going to be on the right hand and the left. If you just need to surrender to God, take a a posture of surrender before him as you come get on your face on these carpets or on your knees. Remember, guys, if you were ever going to take communion, come and take communion. Husbands, grab your wife. Come. Come, take the, the bread, dip it in the cup. Remember Christ's body that was broken, his blood that was shed. Remember that the work is finished.